You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Selah. Welcome back to our podcast, Discriminology. We will be tackling critical race theory with an expert on the subject, who is the Dean of the Law School of Boston University. Dr. Angela Anwachi Willig is a renowned legal scholar and expert in racial and gender inequality, as well as civil rights, and is currently the Dean of Boston University School of Law. Before joining BU Law, Dean Anwachi Willig taught employment discrimination, evidence family law, critical race theory, and torts as Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. She holds a bachelor's from Grinnell College, a JD from the University of Michigan, where she was a Clarence Darrow Scholar, and also holds a PhD in Sociology and African American Studies from Yale. Angela, we can't tell you how excited we are to have you on today. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It's always good to uh, talk to a, uh, an old friend and it's always good to meet new friends. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So this, the podcast that you're on, we're, we're trying to expose our listeners to as many different theories and as many different explanations as to what's going on. Certainly this year has, uh, has raised awareness, I would say, more than more than most of the years that I've been alive and people are really interested in learning. And one of the things that you're such an expert in and we'd like you to, to help us out is, could you explain to our listeners what critical race theory is and, and how it applies to American society? Sure. So critical race theory really um, steps back and really analyzes racism in the country, it takes a really more expansive view of racism in the country. So if you grow up in the United States, one of the simplistic understandings of race or racism that we're told as children is that racism is about intent. It's only about intent. It's attitudinal, right? That, you know, racism is that I don't like somebody because of the, uh, because of the color of their skin, right? So number one, that's one simplistic understanding is that limiting the understanding of race to only skin color, physical features. Um, and that it's only attitudinal. It's only about my intent and whether I like someone or not dislike someone based upon those physical features. And critical race theory really really talks about how the complexity and the sort of the messiness of race. It also um, talks about how structures and institutions, right, and and non-conscious bias, non-conscious um, um, racism. Uh, works to reinforce white supremacy, works to reinforce racial hierarchy, and works to entrench racial disparities. Um, so there, there are several core tenets of critical race theory. So one of them is, of course, what? First, what is race? How do we understand what race is? Uh, the first is that race is a social construction. It's not, it's not uh, biologically defined, right? So people like to say, well, race is about skin color. But race is a social construction. And how do we know that? Because we know that because people who are defined as Black, for example, here in the United States are not necessarily defined as Black in South Africa or in Brazil, right? Mm. Um, if, if race were a biological thing, that definition would remain constant, right? But it's about the social meaning that gets attached to particular things, right? Um, and so... Um, and I'll, and I'll come back to that in a second. So one, number one, race is a social construction. Um, and, and, and yet, even as we say that it's, it's a social construction, it doesn't mean that the consequences that come with it aren't real, right? It has real meaning that gets attached to it, right? And I always like to use this example with my students. I say, you know, you pull out a dollar bill, um, a dollar bill is a social construction. That doesn't have any inherent meaning. Um, <laughs> it doesn't have any inherent meaning. We've given it meaning in our society. The fact that it's a social construction doesn't mean that I can then write on a piece of paper, a piece of white paper, a $1 bill and go into a store and try to use it, right? Um, uh, and so race, it has real meaning, even though it isn't something that is necessarily biologically real, right? 
And in fact, we know from science that there's no gene that, that people who are deemed to be all of one race share, right? There might even be more similarities genetically with people across, race, across um, racial backgrounds. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm also happy to talk about more, more. I mean, so I'll talk, talk about a few more things and there are lots of tenants, but another core tenant is that race is not extraordinary. It's a, that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's baked into everything that we do. It's embedded in our institutions. It's, it's really embedded into our minds, right? Non-consciously right. and consciously. Um, and that, you know, you can't say, I'm going to take this out and look at that separately, that it's really just sort of, in, it's sort of embedded into everything that I could take any topic and really tell you about how it's being influenced by race and racism. Um, and so that's, that's another core tenet of critical race theory, um, another way in which it challenges one of the sort of broader stories that people um, like to talk about with racism. So when we speak about racism, is it more accurate to refer to racism as macro as in a system that affects us all? Is it inaccurate for me to say an individual is racist? Or is that just like a system that affects everyone and we have no choice but to be a part of it? I guess what I'm saying is that it's both are correct, right? <laughs> it is a system that affects us all, is that it is both attitudinal and it is both institutional. It is both it is both about intentional action, right? Conscious action, and it's both about structural racism. And so um, that you could say both things, right? That are that a person is racist, and that or that an action is racist. Mm. You can have a, a racist action from somebody who is not actually hold consciously racist beliefs, um, and, uh, or but you certainly the structure, right? Our country, right? Whole system can be is is racist, right? Whole institution. Is critical race theory something that's specific to the United States, or is this like a global concept? It's it's really a global concept, but I mean, it was developed in the United States, and right. And remember, I talked about how race functions differently, and race is defined differently in different places, right? So in South Africa, people who would be black in the United States because of the one drop rule that you know basically says one drop of black of black blood makes you black, right? that are, are colored, right? Or they use a the term colored, right? There's a there's sort of a um, in-between group, right? In South Africa, racial group in South Africa. Um, so, you know, to the extent that race differs, right? And is defined differently in different countries, the application, the understanding of some of these theories might shift, right? With the different, um, with the different contexts in which you're operating. But many of the same ideas would apply, right? Intersectionality is another core principle of critical race theory, which says that, you know, how I experience um, life or how I experience discrimination is going, to, is, is going to be distinct from the way that, for example, a black man does, right? Because of the intersection of my experiences as a black woman, for example. Um, so the kind of discrimination I face in the workplace is going to be different from that of a black man because I am both black and a woman, right? Or uh, different from a white woman because I am both black and a woman as opposed to white right. and a woman, right? So that's a, that's a concept that applies everywhere, but, you know, how it gets applied and understood interpreted might differ based upon how racism operates in that country and how race is defined in that country. Can you elaborate on what blackness means within critical race theory and additionally what whiteness means? Yeah. So, I mean, blackness, I mean, I think, uh, so I won't say, I won't claim that when I, even when I say core tenants, right? So pretty much racism, social construction, racism is everywhere, right? Um, those kinds of things. Um, intersectionality, those are things that all critical race theorists agree on. We might not all agree on, on definitions of blackness and whiteness, right? Um, but but I, I, I would define um, blackness as being, um, defining people uh, <laughs> or, or blackness as being a racial category or a racial identity that is either imposed upon or that is either selected, right, as an identification um, by people who share certain physical features that are identified with the Black race, have a shared history that is linked to experiences of Black people in the United States, whether that is uh, rooted in slavery, 
um, or whether that's rooted in certain immigrant experiences in the United States that get linked in, in other people's minds to particular stereotypes that have attached to the notion of blackness, right? So it's, I would say race and blackness is about um, defined by history, it's defined by physical features, it's defined by, you know, um, and it's defined by performance and, and, you know, how people perform their identities as well. So um, it's a complex um, definition. Whiteness, you would say, is, is similar, but the op opposite of all those things. I mean, right, a definition of, you know, it's either imposed upon or selected identif identification of people um, who are in this country presumed to be superior to those of other races or um, and who are defined as normative in the United States, you know, who have a shared history or a shared understanding of, uh, of their place in society as people who are usually seen as raceless. <laughs> Um, right. Even, you know, even though we know that white people have a race, most white people see themselves as raceless um, and not affected by race. And as you, as you pointed out earlier, um, uh, are, certainly we are all affected by racism. And, and for some of us, it's more visible than it is for others. That's interesting. You know, one of, one of the things that, uh, that, you were, that you were touching on, which, which I think is, uh, is so essential to this question is is the experience within the black community is for people who want to lump everyone in this country who is of black skin as being one race or one community that we know that we have many many different african american communities and many different black communities there there are certain plenty of people who have dark skin that don't like being called african american right so do you have any insight in, is to is there a hierarchy that's that's in the communities? Is there animosity? Is there a sense of community? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's certainly a sense of community. I mean, so there's something called linked fate in, in political science, this theory of linked fate that, you know, many Black people see their fate as linked to another, right? So you, you take something like police killings, right? Um, and you hear a lot of Black people, regardless of education, regardless of um, regardless of skin color, regardless of income level, regardless of wealth, any of those things saying that could have been me, right? Mm. Or that could have been my brother or my sister or my child, right? Um, because we know that racism operates in a way and we might all be differently positioned and some of us might be more vulnerable to certain types of racism than others. But um, we, we see the way in which racism shapes our lives regardless, many of us do, regardless of our position, regardless of class, income, all those things. And so we see our fate is very much linked to other um, Black people. So I do think that there is some broad identification, right? Everybody likes to talk about the nod, right? If you go someplace where there are many people, you might nod to somebody who's a particular stranger who's African-American. And I think that comes from some sense of a linked fate. But um, there are definitely rifts, and there have been historical rifts and current rifts, right? There's all of historically, of course, there's been divisions that were created in this country based on skin color, right? And so, um, you know, and this stems back from slavery, of course, that, you know, what people would like to call the house slaves versus the field slaves, right? And so the house slaves tended to be those who were light skinned often the children of the master, right, um, who would rape um, um, uh, many Black female slaves and, um, and um, might receive more favorable treatment. Of course, there was no such thing as really favorable treatment in slavery. And, um, and, and then uh, field slaves were those who were uh, darker skin, um, 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 perceived to be able to handle the uh, the harshness of the work and all these things, right? Perceived as less human, all of those things. Um, and so that for a long time, you saw really like um, um, internalized um, internalized um, racism, right? And within the African-American community where um, some people would try to maintain the lightness in their family and whatever privileges came with that. 
Um, there were hierarchies in terms of there's, and there are probably still some existing hierarchies in terms of beauty standards, in terms of whether someone has light hair or what people call even good hair. If your hair is a little bit wavy, straighter, right? Not really, really coiled hair. Mm -hmm. um, there are certainly also divisions among, you know, immigrant um, blacks and, and blacks with long-term roots in the United States that extend all the way back to slavery, right? And so, you know, there's there's a way in which uh, someone said, you know, I can't remember who said it, but I guess all immigrants come to the country and realize who's on the bottom of the hierarchy and you work to distinguish yourself from those who are on the bottom. And those on the bottom are, are black Americans with long-term roots connected to slavery in the country, right? And so, um, uh, you might hear from some Caribbean um, blacks or some African blacks who might to who might, um, in certain instances, um, play up their accent or you know talk with an accent when they don't really have one in order to distinguish themselves from African Americans, right? Because uh, among blacks, among blacks, there is research that shows that whites do have a. Uh, um, a preference even in employment, hiring, things of that nature with Blacks with shorter term roots in this country. So first, second generation Blacks who come from the Caribbean or, um, or Africa, right? And the positive stereotypes that, for example, get attached to um, certain groups of people like um, Jamaicans. Jamaicans have a million jobs, right? Hardworking or Nigerians are known to be industrious, right? And so um, those kinds of stereotypes tend to get attached to um, blacks who are are not viewed as American, who, who are, you know, um, and so there are divisions there that are very real. There are real consequences of it. If you look at a many elite colleges or many colleges and universities, you will see there is a major overrepresentation of first and second generation black Americans in those schools and a really severe underrepresentation of what um, Derek Bell called the descendants, African-Americans who have long-term roots that trace all the way back to slavery, right? And so in, in colleges and universities, you see more people like me. I'm a, I'm a second-generation African and my family's Nigerian, right? Um, then you see people who um, are descendants of slaves. Uh, and and, and that, that, that happens. There are lots of reasons why you see see that but you know one of them is certainly um uh racism and discrimination and ethnocentrism yeah i have a question for the both of you i wanted to bring it back to something uh dr anwashi willick said discussing how slaves and field slaves and and the rapings that occurred i learned about some of the ugly truths of uh you know the american experience for black people through my own self-education do both of you feel like the almost sanitation of black history in this country lends to the condition where a lot of individuals from the, the greater power structure don't really understand why individuals are so upset and why there's so much civil unrest. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it, it not only um, makes it such that people don't understand why people are so upset and why there's so much unrest, but it makes it hard for them to understand why it's so hard to overcome right racism why you know it makes when they don't know about the ways in which land was stolen and wealth was stolen and wealth was lost and there can't be intergenerational transfers of wealth right and i mean all the things that you know the whole pick yourself up by the bootstraps narrative just doesn't work when you really know your history right um and so it it is the one of the worst things that happens in our country is the sanitization of uh, of, of of history. Um, the way in which history gets sanitized is is a real flaw, um, and it does a lot of harm to race relations. Yeah, I could tell you. I have I have two reactions to your question, Malik. The first one is very personal, and I went to one of the best schools in the nation. I and one of the most liberal schools in the nation, and my American history was completely sanitized that I learned there. You know, it was not until I started teaching in Houston that I really started to kind of fully understand what was going on. Um, I remember having incredible conversations with people that I never would have come into contact uh, with here in New York or even at Columbia. 
and it really opened my eyes and it and if it really wasn't for my own personal experience of, of teaching in Houston, I, I, I can't honestly tell you whether I ever would have been kind of woken up, I guess, is a, is a way to say it, you know? So I think it was my experiences down there that really led me down to really kind of understanding what, what actually was going on. It certainly wasn't my high school education and it wasn't my, it really wasn't my college education either. Um, so there's that. And then my other reaction is my reaction to what's going on in the in the country today. They they want to already sanitize the horrors of the last four years under this administration. They're already talking about you know sweeping things under the rug that this administration had done, uh, and it's 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 fascinating because you know it's it's the same historical argument that's always been there. You know, well, if we do this, if we punish them then we're, we're getting away from unity, right? It's the entire reason Reconstruction fell apart, and it's the entire reason Reconstruction eventually led to Jim Crow, is because everybody was so afraid to punish people who had committed these atrocities. So, yeah, those are my reactions to that question. And, um, yeah, we, we do not do any sort of teaching, at, certainly at the high school level, but I can't imagine that there are many colleges that are really good at it even what you were referring to in terms of uh, the cry for unity, as important as unity is, you, th that same cry for unity, as you said, is what pretty much created Jim Crow. I know we're getting a little off top topic from critical race theory, but it's just interesting to think about where's the line you draw between accountability while still trying to, uh, you know, foster a unified nation. Yeah, no, I think it's all related. I think, I think, you know, I know I said to you, I, I think that this nation the driving force in this nation's history, or certainly one of the biggest driving forces of our American history is how the white power structure decided to treat, or it still decides to treat its black people absolutely, or its people of color or its minorities. I mean, you can look at every major historical time period, however you want to break it down. And it, it often just boils down to that. And it's, it's incredible to me that you have educated people who still kind of want to try to deny that race is everything and race is everywhere. But, uh, but it is, it is. That kind of segues into a question I had for uh, Dr. Unwatcha Willig anyway. Um, so you explained critical race theory. Can you touch on how it interacts with our laws and how we enforce our laws? I actually wanted to ask you this question when you brought up uh, police killings. So it, it's all pretty interrelated. Yeah. So I think critical race theory, uh, you know, t interacts with our laws because it helps to unpack how race is operating both visibly and invisibly in our case law, in statutes, right? Um, you know, in law, in, in all kinds of law, right? And so, um, so you'll have cases that say, so for example, something like we're using this objective or neutral standard. And yet, you know, it's not actually an objective or neutral standard. It's really a white male, you know, middle class, able-bodied, you know, standard, right? Or proper, you know, you know, property male standard, right? And critical race theory unpacks it and says, there are all these things that are really invisible or made to look like they're invisible. And this isn't really objective. And here are all the ways in which race and gender and all these things are creeping into the standard. And we're really unpacking it to show you how it's not actually objective. Or here are all the assumptions that were made in this case that are not in line with the actual lives and the realities of people of color. And so this opinion was written by a group of white male judges who made assumptions about people's lives or their actual being and then issued an opinion that applies to everyone that is that is that is simply not um just as a result right so i'll give you a couple of examples one would be one example would be some of these hair discrimination cases right so the you know, whether you can wear your hair in twists or locks or braids, anything of that nature um, in the workplace. So now we have the Crown Act, which was passed in New York, which was, of course, passed in New Jersey, passed in California, which basically says that kind of hair-based discrimination is discrimination. But that's a written statute that basically says it. But in the case law, 
all the case law says that's not race discrimination. That's that's not any kind of discrimination. That's simply about hair, and hair is a mutable characteristic, and therefore it's not discrimination. But one of the assumptions in those cases, of course, is that black people, the texture and structure of black people's hair is like white people's hair. It's the same, right, and it's not. And so you can read the opinion and you can tell that's what the judge is thinking, right? Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, because the judge makes suggestions about what she should do with her hair. The judge makes even the comment about how the uh, cornrows became popular because Bo Derek wore it in the movie 10, right? Jesus. I mean, even though, you know, uh, black people have been wearing the hair for a long, uh, for many, many years. And this is the this is the decision that everyone cites to and, and follows over and over and over again, right? So there are all these written assumptions into it that somebody who knew nothing about black hair wrote a decision, and then that gets applied to every single case from there on after. Um, and it's the law, and it's unjust. It doesn't align with our realities. And what it does is it results into basically case law that basically tells black people, you have to change the texture and structure of your hair. Right. The chemical process through a heat process um, in order for you to be deemed professional in the workplace, that your hair texture and structure is not good enough. I have two comments on that. So you bring up an interesting point, how the judge made a decision based, well, from a place or a scope or lack thereof a scope with an understanding of black people in the country. You know, I, I read something that was very interesting the other day, and it's and it stated that you can be a CEO, you can be a leader of a business group, you can be a teacher or any high level profession with a lot of responsibility, without ever formally learning about race in this country, diversity and inclusion in this country, and how to effectively manage it. Like I have, I have a um, an MBA myself. I went through twelve, well, not twelve years of, because you learn about civil rights in in high school sparingly. But I went through four years um, with an undergraduate business degree, and then I obtained my MBA, and I never once had a full class or a full discussion about effective diversity and inclusion and how to properly manage uh, a diverse workforce. But my degree says that I am competent and educated to manage a team. And that, to me, is problematic. I'll let you respond to that first, and then I'll, I'll ask my uh, follow-up question. Absolutely. I mean, I think that I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, excellent point. And we do that all the time. And we do that in uh, in law. I mean, we're we're I mean, depending on now that you now that you have more deans of color, more people are saying, actually, you know, we need to be doing things differently. Uh, you're starting to see changes, but absolutely, we do that all the time. And one of the one, I just want to think I say all, always the flaws in, in higher education. One of the flaws in higher education is that the people who are making all decisions are all the people who can't see all the flaws, right? So the people who get to be professors or deans or provosts or presidents are usually people for whom the system worked and they tend to not look like me. They tend to not have my background. And so they don't see all the flaws. They think everything is okay. Um, and they themselves have not had diverse interactions with people. And so they don't even see what they're missing, right? I mean, one of the what I'm always surprised by is that um, people can get to be my age and never have many interactions with people of color. Like I, I'm always meeting people who are wonderful people, really committed to, you know, they really um, are, they really have anti-racist beliefs. They, you know, very progressive, but they actually on a, on the, in every, every year of their lives, they've had limited interactions with people of color. Right. And then they're training people, teaching people how to be lawyers, teaching people how to be lawyers when they're going to have diverse clients. And, but the, so they're, and then they're not because they're not thinking about it themselves. They're not training them and not teaching them how to deal with clients who have different backgrounds than they do. Right. And then I think about this, the unevenness of it all. Like, right. Um, I could never be in the position that I'm in now if I said I never interacted with white people. In my, I mean, are rarely interacted with white people in my life. That's an interesting point you bring up because I'm I'm also black um, as well, and I feel like to achieve any amount of success or however you measure success, and for this instance, we'll measure success as financial independence and education level, et cetera, or profession. We have no choice but to effectively interact with white people, whereas you know, white Americans have the luxury to be able to effectively live out their full existence without A, interacting with black people and B, knowing how to effectively 
do so in, in a meaningful way. Absolutely. And then, and yet people will then say, well, I don't like the way people self-segregate. And I'm like, but you've spent your whole life self-segregating. <laughs> and those people that you are saying are self-segregating have actually had really diverse interactions their whole lives, right? They wouldn't be here if they didn't have those diverse interactions. Like they couldn't, they couldn't be here, right? It's impossible for me to self-segregate or marginalize, or it's impossible for me to self-segregate, right? Because I have to operate in this world. <laughs> mm. um, I don't have a choice um, but to um, but to engage in these um, racially diverse groups. On the other hand, they have the exact opposite choice. And um, uh, and it's interesting to me how people don't see that. It's, it's, it's invisible to them in the same way that their racial background is invisible to them and their privilege is invisible to them. Of course, everybody's read this, um, uh, you know, Peggy McIntosh writes the this wonderful piece about white privilege and the invisibility of white privilege, you know, all of the things that she couldn't see until she made herself see them, you know. Um, you know, being able to see people who were like her on TV and being able to see people who are, you know, being able to ask to see the person in charge and almost being certain that person was going to look like her, right? Um, yeah, um, yeah. You know, um, uh, so just like, you know, being able to, feeling like she can go, uh, she can, you know, purchase a place at any place that she um, could afford um, and and not worry about her actual safety, right? Her physical safety, all those kinds right. of things. Um, it's, uh, or not worry about being discriminated against, right? All those kinds of things. It's super interesting. Um, uh, so what I'm always amazed by is how invisible it is to people. And yet that people will say things about, um people of color and the actions of people of color completely unaware of their privilege and how they themselves have led a completely, completely segregated life. Dr. Um, Awachi Willig, I wanted to also touch on something you said earlier in regards to the law when you're bringing up the hair discrimination cases. Um, you know, Martha Luther King is famous for stating that it is a, a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws while it's a moral obligation to, to also obey just laws. And he uh, made that distinction in, um, I think it was his letter from Birmingham. As a law professor, uh, how how do you feel about that? And is that something that still applies today with all the uh, civil unrest and the protests we've seen over the summer? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, from my point of view, yes, I think that's right. I think that if you want to see real justice and equality in our society, that we all have an obligation to to push for real justice. We all have an obligation to push for real equity in our society or substantive equality in our society. And that means resisting things that are inherently unjust because they have written the realities of certain people out, out of it. Uh, and so, um, and I think that's an obligation for everyone, not just for people of color. It's one of the things that we try to, um, teach our students here. And one of the things I try to impart to my own students, one of the things I try to impart to faculty here as there, is that it's the work of everyone, not simply the work of people of color or not simply the work of women or, um, you know, or people who identify as uh, LGBTQIA, right? Um, plus, uh, can you hear that? I'm so, sorry. Can you hear my emails keep coming up or no? Yeah, I wasn't sure if it was uh, Mr. Kramer. Yeah, I was looking at my computer. Yeah, I, I was looking for my computer. But... Yeah, I was. I wasn't sure who it was. Sorry. No, right. it's okay. It's a little background. It's a nice little tune. Little you know, it's like every time a, a great point is made. <laughs> let me. <laughs> let, me I, let me try to close this out. Uh... So, if if I could just jump in um, to what to to the previous point, I I sorry to interrupt, but uh, I I can absolutely tell you a hundred percent from my experience as a teacher that it is impossible, absolutely impossible for me to convince other educators that the way they're treating children, depending on their race matters, that they, they try to treat everybody that comes into their room as everybody fit. You know, you understand that people have different learning abilities and things like this, but there is, so much misunderstanding on minority communities and they try to give you a little 
you know, a little in-service here, a little in-service there, but there's no real training in it, right? So one of the largest problems we have, and Angela, I know you and I have talked about this this before, is is identifying kids, and, and Malik can speak to this personally, identifying kids who are gifted and talented at a young age almost always comes down to their behavior. You know, or the final placement anyway comes down to their behavior. Certainly they're given all sorts of tests and things like that. But when it comes to actually putting a kid into a gifted and talented program or an accelerated program, it almost always comes down to, oh, he's a nice kid. Oh, she's a nice girl, whatever. And that always, always favors the white children. Without, a, without question that favors because of people's inherent biases and things like that. So I think when you were talking about experience and people having experience and getting to that age, I've, I'm teaching with people and the same thing, wonderful people, you know, they get it, but they just, they just don't know what they're doing and how they're having an effect on these kids. And then some of these behaviors wind up getting prescribed drugs, you know, like, well, he can't sit down. So let me give him drugs. Like, how about you just like, you know, teach him? How about that? You know? Right. So. It's the argument of equity versus equality, whereas like equality is just trying to treat every single circumstance person event the same with the same resources where equity, you know, goes a little deeper and tries to address you know, the specific challenges a particular, in this case, a particular student may have that may not yeah. be universal to the other students in the class and compensating. So, you know, everyone is actually on a, on an equal playing field. Right. No, absolutely. It's uh, yeah. I mean, and, and it's, and it's, you know, it's not a difficult concept and it's amazing how all these really, really smart people can't understand that. <laughs> um, um, uh, is it can't understand or is it, is it something that like we just, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. It challenges, you know, an experience that they've always had. And therefore, you're right. Whether it's conscious or subconscious, we don't want to understand. You're right. You're right. It's, it's uncomfortable and they don't want to understand it. Yeah. I think one of the most difficult things and, and certainly one of the most difficult things I had in my life, for sure, growing up and growing up on Long Island was confronting your own racism, you know, confronting your own biases. And no, nobody wants to do that, or very few people want to do that, or very few people are willing to confront their own biases. So, you know, when I moved down to Houston, I had to unlearn a tremendous amount of things coming out of my suburban Long Island white school district and, you know, really start, start to understand things uh, the way they went. So I think it's more, it's really, really difficult for people to admit, and you hear it all the time. So people will say, the most racist things and then say, I'm not racist. Like, well, <laughs> sure you are. <laughs> of course you are. You know, you just said it. So I think it's that uncomfortability and that unwillingness to to recognize that you do have these biases. Dr. Anwachi uh, Willig actually, she gave a, tech talk, a TED talk uh, called Challenge Your Biases. So maybe this would be a good time to, you know, speak a little bit about, about that. Yeah, well, so I mean, a similar. I mean, I was trying to make a similar point. I was talking about, uh, you know, a case that I wrote a book related to, which was a an interracial couple um, from the 1920s, um, uh, and uh, they fall in love. But the father of the white man, who's from a very, very wealthy family, doesn't want them to be together, and he forces his son to bring uh, um, file for annulment on the grounds of racial fraud, saying that she didn't. Um, she didn't tell him about her. Is her this Alice and Leonard? Alice and Leonard Rhinelander. Okay. And, you know, what I was really trying to make a point was about just like how the law doesn't operate in a vacuum. And one of the things that people try to act like is that, you know, when people teach the law, they try to just teach the doctrine. Here's just what, here's what the law is. Here's what the rule is. Here's how it applied in this case. Here's how you would distinguish it from other cases. And yet, you've got to tell people what's going on in the background, right? So when I, when I teach a case, I'm always like, okay, what's going on in the background in this case? So let's say I'm teaching, uh, a, a, you know, uh, you know, um, Griggs versus, um, or, or, or let's say we're looking at Emmett Till, right? Looking at the Emmett Till case. Um, what's going on in the background out there? I mean, number one, we're talking about we're in the Jim Crow era, what's going, but also this is a time when, the Brown decision just came down. Brown one came down. Brown two came down. And so white people in the South 
are completely revolting because they feel like their world is about to change, right? Brown versus Board of Education just comes down, right? And so we're at we're at a height of resistance, right? This fear, and in particular, like the men who killed the two white men who led the charge on killing Emmett Till or lynching Emmett Till are are lower class, you know, just above, you know, um, the poorest whites, um, white men who are really worried about losing their place, right? They're, they're worried about losing the wages of their whiteness, right? The psychological wages of their whiteness, the importance of knowing that, you know, they're not at the bottom as long as black people remain there, right? So they're inherently better than black people. So, you know, it's, it's really just sort of digging out what's operating behind everything, what's going on in the background that is shaping, that is influencing this case. And then sort of, sort of like, what are all the things that are happening in the society in terms of racism, sexism, whatever there is that's going on that's shaping what's going on in these cases or what is shaping everything around us. And I think that what I was trying to, the point I was trying to make was really in that TED talk is that, you know, you know, law is not operating in a vacuum, that there's, there are all these other factors that are also operating. Um, because in the Rhinelander case, there was no, it was in New York, it's in, it takes place in New York. Um, and there was there was no ban on interracial marriages, and yet right. here it was. The court is allowing he's bring able to bring this annulment based on racial fraud. And what's the basis for that? It's no, there's no no ban on interracial marriages. I mean, and what so what's the ground on it? It was purely a social norm that was allowed to be written into the you know basically allowed to be essentially invisibly written into the law and had his case was heard, was heard and there was a month-long trial. So think about all the resources, all the time, and this is going on for a, you know, a year-long period, all the press, everything that goes into this case that really shouldn't have even existed. It's also a great example of how pervasive racism, especially in the United States, is. Often when we think of, at least how it's taught, uh, when we think of racism, we, we think it stops as soon as you leave the last considered Southern state, right? And that racism can't exist in New York or, or you know, the Northeast or, or other states that are labeled liberal. And it's just so far from the truth. It's, it, may, it may be a little more disguised. Uh, Malcolm X is, is famous for saying that in the South, uh, racism is represented at the wolf. You know where your enemy is. You know it's, it doesn't like you, et cetera. And in the North, it's it's more relatable to a fox that will befriend befriend you, and um, before you realize it, you're half eaten. <laughs> I haven't heard that. So that that's a, so that's very good. It's very good. Yeah, that's right. It yeah, it just operates really quite differently, right? In the in the in the North and the South, and 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 and, and what people don't get is they think okay, racism is gone because it's not this really explicit Jim Crow form of racism, but it's, you know, racism is adapted and it's become more subtle and more complex, right? And and we have to adapt with that too in terms of understanding it so that we can undo it. And yet the law hasn't shifted either with that. The law really sort of focuses on, it requires intent, you know, it requires your proof of intent. It, it really sticks with this old model of discrimination um, that's hard to prove. And um, and that because people are in such denial, they never want to believe that racism is operating or any kind of discrimination is operating. They'll come up with any excuse, even when all other excuses have been lim- eliminated. In terms of racial progression, acknowledgement of the laws that have been passed, like throughout the civil rights movement, um, there has been progress made. At the same time, as you were touching on, uh, racism tends to adapt and, you know, it adapts to whatever is socially acceptable at the time. The words change. For example, not being able to directly criminalize black people in, in, in verbiage that that evolved into the phrase law and order or things like that. So are we in a situation where we're actually making real progress or are we just forcing racism to continuously adapt and become more ambiguous and, and harder to call out? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great question. Um, I think that. uh <laughs> you have to get, it depends on the day that you catch me on, I would say. I mean, I think there, there is some, you know, there, it, there, there is some undeniable progress. I mean, I guess, because I, to, to pay homage to ancestors and people who, you know, who lost their lives or gave their lives for some of the privileges that we have, like, 
voting, right? For example, that I have today, like voting or being able to be in the job that I'm in, that I'm in currently right now. Um, there have been there's some some undeniable progress, and yet there is, you know, it's adapted in different ways. So it's like there are there are voting rights that are recognizing it. There's imme Im Im immense voting suppression, right? Um, um, that had to be that that all this energy and money has to be put into in order to undo to win in one state, right? Barely, right? Georgia. I'm thinking about Georgia, right? You know, so it's kind of like you take. You know, it's it, it is it is progress with, you know, it is it is um, it is progress, and yet it is um, not progress. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. I have a hard time thinking through it. What you said, I resonated with the best was it, it depends on what day you catch me. Yeah. Um, if I'm if I'm feeling a little in, in higher spirits emotionally, I'll say no, like things are getting better. We're making progress. Look at this, this, and this, and then. You know, you see something on the news, like, for, for example, just, you know, the um, what we saw happen at the Capitol on that day, I was I, I, you, I would have likely said that it's pervasive, it's adapting, nothing has changed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and I also say, say, you know, I mean, in my world, I live in a very, very privileged world. And so I think for, for there are many people for whom it hasn't changed at all. Right. Um and so, um, and I think that is part of the, you know, uh, Ken Mack wrote this book where he talks about the um, uh, representing the race and he's talking about old civil rights lawyers and how they had the burden of, you know, both, you know, actually literally representing the race in, in actual cases, but also being a sort of an image of what, what could be if you gave people rights and recognize people's rights. Right. Um, and yet, I think one of the things that happens now is that people like us get used as um, a way to shame people for whom um, or to um, for whom structural discrimination has kept down, structural racism has kept them down, right? And so it's like, oh well, you aren't you aren't doing what you should do because look at these people; they've done they've they've made their way out, right? And so sometimes I think it's almost worse, right? Or or sometimes I'll be in a space. And I'll look around, I'll, you know, I'll be in the, back when we were flying, I'll be in the airport, or I'll be in some places. And, you know, you just notice, you look around and you're the only person of color and you just wonder, everybody else is operating like this is completely normal. And you just wonder, do they notice that this is, you know, not what the U.S. looks like, that this is not diverse and they just, nobody else seems to notice it, you know, those kinds of things. Um, uh, and so then I begin to think maybe it's worse, but um, but you know, I mean, to then I think, well, gosh, people did, people did um, die for me to have this this right to vote, or you know, um, to have you know, there's a Title Seven, you know, you know, statutes that people can sue, to, you know, to to try to remedy discrimination that they've encountered in the workplace. Of course, it's all the case law on it is horrible, um, but. Um, so I don't know. It's I, I, yes. I think you're you're right. Like you said, uh, it depends it depends on the day. And I I felt the same way you did too on January sixth. To that same point, when you touched on your example in the airport and and everyone around you is operating as if this is normal, what are some of the main challenges to critical race theory? Like uh, what are this? What are the primary oppositions that you hear um, throughout debates or when you're teaching in those circumstances? And what are your rebuttals to them? I mean, some people used to, some people, I mean, uh, you see them less now, but some people would challenge them as saying that it was racist itself, right? Um, um, it's racist to say that people of color have a unique voice of color, which of course it's true. I mean, I, um, um, or, you know, it's racist to be bringing attention to race. I mean, so, I mean, I think the, the response is, all of those responses are part of why critical race theory needs to exist, right? That it's highlighting the the responses themselves are a part of the structural racism. Racism. They're they're one of the means that have been used for so long in order to keep racism alive, right? <laughs> and to try to keep people quiet and 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 to not have them speak out against racism. And and so. Um, some of the responses themselves are the very tools that have been used to keep people down. Yeah, well, I think Angela, one of you know, one of the things that I that that infuriates me, I guess, as forever, 
is, and this touches on what you were saying, when you see someone like yourself has such tremendous success, the racist will say, well, what is she complaining about? She's got such a good job. Or when you see athletes take a knee, what's he complaining about? He's making a million dollars. But it's the same thing that they used to say during slavery. Well, what are they complaining about? We feed them. And then Jim Crow, what are we, what are they complaining about? We let them live over there. And it's, it's always the racist reaction. And it's, and it's, I, I would say most people's reaction is, is, oh, what are they complaining about? It's like, well, <laughs> there's, there's a lot to complain about because if you didn't know who she was or you didn't know who he was, he would be treated just like that. He would have, he would have had his neck knelt on also. And, and sometimes even if they know who you are, they're going to kneel on your neck anyway. So there's, there's plenty to complain about. No, complain, complain's the wrong word. There's plenty to try to open people's eyes to. And, and again, it's that, it's that, I think it's that just complete unwillingness for people to challenge their own, their own biases, you know, the, the whole reaction to Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter, how, how just infuriating that, that answer is just, it's kind of the same old answer, you know, it's just kind of the same things that just keep getting up. So I would say it's like fits and starts, you know, we, we have, we see tremendous, um, Tremendous advances, you know, at some time periods, we see tremendous advances and then tremendous steps backwards and, and fits and starts like that. But there will never there will never be a time. I, I think there will never be a time where race is not a driving factor in this country. I just think it's it's part of who we are. It's part of it's part of the Constitution, for God's sakes. It's part of it's part of every law, you know, I I completely agree with everything. Um everything you said and uh absolutely agree with everything you said um and and many of the people who uh, as you pointed out who say all lives matter are also the same people who uh who don't have a problem with blue lives matter <laughs> right of course of course they'll beat you over the head with a flag that says all blue lives matter even if you're a cop it's unbelievable well Angela, we cannot thank you enough for being on our episode today. You have enlightened us tremendously, and you've given us and our audience just a tremendous amount to think about. And you framed you framed things in ways that I hadn't thought about before. So I can tell you that I'm going to take away a tremendous amount from this. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot from this conversation. So thank you for engaging in this conversation with me. I appreciate it very much. It was our pleasure, Doctor. I'm watching Willig. It was it was really uh, a pleasure to speak to you and and hear your perspectives and insights on um on your experiences and critical race theory at large. Um, we learned a lot as well. So thank you. Great, great, very nice meeting you, Malik. Nice talking to you again, Steve. Great talking to you, Angela. We will talk soon. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.